But the reality is we're having to correct blatant factual errors in real time. And the only way to do that is to say, yes, he said that, but by the way, that's not true. And the to- I think that that has changed everything for objectivity, perceived objectivity, uh, because then we get criticized for, you know, expressing opinions, but we also have a responsibility to purvey the truth. Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way editor and president, Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word and Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship has valued theological education as a vital component of vocational ministry preparation for more than 25 years. It puts these words to action by investing in students who are current and future ministry leaders in CBF Life. The fellowship awards up to 70 scholarships annually to Baptist students enrolled in the Master of Divinity degree program at an accredited institution of higher education. For more information about all that CBF offers students, visit cbf.net slash seminary dash resources. In this episode, we're going to have a conversation with Mark Wingfield. He's the executive director and publisher of Baptist News Global. Baptist News Global, or BNG, has long been a partner of Word and Way. In fact, even before it was known as BNG, when it was Associated Baptist Press, and Mark will talk a bit about that in the episode, Word and Way's editor at the time, Bob Terry, and then Bill Webb, and now myself, have worked closely with BNG. We run some of their pieces in our magazine. They rerun some of our content on their site at baptistnews.com. And it's been a really good collaborative relationship between our two organizations. So I was excited to have Mark on to talk about BNG, to talk about Baptist journalism, particularly as he's fairly new to this role. And so I'm glad to introduce him to our listeners here. Mark started July 1 with BNG. He had been writing for them for quite some time and has a long history in Baptist journalism, but he's fairly new to this role as executive director and publisher. So here's my conversation with Mark Wingfield of Baptist News Global. Well, Mark, first of all, thanks for joining us on the program. Sure. Glad to be here. You are the executive director and publisher of Baptist News Global. And for those who aren't familiar with Baptist News Global, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about who you all are and what you do. Baptist News Global began life 30 years ago as Associated Baptist Press, and we are one of the entities that is a direct result of the schism within the Southern Baptist Convention that began in 1979. So by 1990, uh, in the summer of that year, the SBC Executive Committee fired the two editors of Baptist Press, Dan Martin and Al Shackelford, And that afternoon, uh, a group of us who were there, who were Baptist journalists at the time, walked across the street and began uh, forming a news collaborative that was to be called Associated Baptist Press, modeled after the Associated Press as a kind of collaborative. And Word and Way was one of the uh, organizers of this at the time. Uh, along with many of the state Baptist papers who felt like they needed a, a more reliable source of news than what Baptist Press was going to be. Fast forward through time, and uh, 
we've we've grown. The market has changed. We can talk about that if you want. We we were a we were not an end user supplier at the beginning, but we are now. But we eight years ago or so merged with the Religious Herald of Virginia to create this new organization called Baptist News Global. So we have we have remnants of both one of the oldest Baptist newspapers in America and one of the newest websites really now dealing with Baptist news and, and more. That, that's a nutshell version. Well, you started in this role, I guess it was in June. July 1st. July, July 1st. July 1st, you started on this role. And uh, I mean, nothing was happening in the world and in, in news. And so it was pretty. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, and now we'll talk a bit about your past in a moment. I know you're no stranger to Baptist journalism and, and even B&G. But first, I just want to kind of talk about the, the stepping into this role in the middle of a biggest global pandemic in a century, uh, not to mention just other stories that have been happening, you know, the protest against racial injustices across the country. I mean, it was a significant news moment if there ever has been one. So I guess that was your, your baptism by fire coming in in this role. So I wonder if you could talk about what that's been like. Yeah, it was a fast burn entry. Uh, I, I was thinking yesterday, I, 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 I've said all along, who changes jobs in the middle of a, who, who changes careers in the middle of a pandemic? I do. And then I was thinking yesterday that I, I have no knowledge of this job, doing this job in any setting other than the pandemic. And there's going to come a day where I'm going to have to reorient myself to what I suppose was uh, life before this, but it's it's the only reality I know. Just like many pastors who've changed churches during the, I can't even imagine how they're doing that. You know, <laughs> it, it skews everything. Yeah, that's funny. So you know, most of us have have adjusted to doing our jobs in a pandemic, and you're going to have to adjust to doing it not in a pandemic. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's all I know. I mean, you you have you have had some experience. Obviously, you you've been a, a columnist with B and G for several years, and and we might talk about your, you made a career change comment, but you, you've been in Baptist journalism before with uh, what the Baptist New Mexican and the Western Recorder and the Baptist Standard. I wonder if you could kind of walk us a little bit through your background, and then maybe you can even talk about your pastoral role that you've had more recently. Who Who's the man behind the B&G these days? Yeah, th thanks for asking. So I, I grew up in Oklahoma and New Mexico, and I, I grew up uh, from birth in a Southern Baptist church. And I, I knew as a seventh grader on a youth choir mission tour to South Dakota from Oklahoma, I, I experienced a call to vocational ministry and knew at that moment that I, there was something I was supposed to do. My my dear mentor and our minister of music, the leader of the youth choir, told the revival meeting that night when I came forward that uh, Mark had been called to be a, a, a missionary, which is not what I said, but it, it, it sort of caused, you know, some consternation. And typical story, I won't go into the whole thing, but for, for the rest of my junior high and high school years and into college, really struggled with what was that calling and how did it play out? Because there were several areas it could be. I, I At the time, I didn't feel called to pastoral ministry, but I loved journalism. I loved music. And those two things vied for my attention. I actually began college as a piano major. Uh, and lasted one semester, and it went home for Christmas break and had an epiphany watching an episode of Blue Grant uh, on TV that that's what I needed to do, and uh, changed my major to journalism, and, you know, that th th there we go. I, I was really fortunate in that um, 
I, I was going to school originally at Oklahoma Baptist University. My family had moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico, my senior year of high school. So I graduated from high school there, went back to OBU. That's another long story. But I was home for the summer after my sophomore year and uh, got an internship with J.B. Fowler, who was the, then the brand new editor of the Baptist New Mexican, the state Baptist paper in, in New Mexico. And uh, J.B. had just come there from uh, Mississippi, where he'd been a pastor, and he needed help. And uh, it was a small weekly newspaper. And he hired me as, as his summer intern. And way sort of led on the way. And by the end of the summer, he said to me, would you consider transferring to the University of New Mexico and working 30 hours a week here as my assistant editor? And it seemed like a great thing to do to have a job while you're still in college. And the university was just down the street. I mean, it was it was a five minute drive from the Baptist building at the time. So I did that. I transferred to UNM, finished my journalism degree there and uh, worked as the assistant editor of the Baptist New Mexican and then off to Southwestern Seminary and uh, landed there in January of 1985. And uh, you can just sort of figure out the timeline. If you know Baptist history, what was going on in the SBC at that time, Russell Bilday was the president and was already under fire from the fundamentalist trustees. And I, I mean, I got my baptism by fire in, in that was a new hired as a news writer there in the public relations office, public affairs office. And within the first year of being there, my boss, who was also a student got hired by another SBC agency and left. And, uh, Suddenly, I became the full-time director of news and information for Southwestern Seminary and flipped from being a part-time employee and full-time student to being a full-time employee, part-time student. And so for the next couple of years, um, oh, got married in the middle of that and lots of stuff going on. So I, I was there at Southwestern for three years and then got hired away by the SBC Home Mission Board, a guy named Jim Newton who used to be the, the head of the news office at the Home Mission Board and was the, the head of the Atlanta Bureau of Baptist Press that was housed there, came and recruited me. And so off we moved to Atlanta, was there three years. I described that as the best possible job under the worst possible circumstances. When I got to the Home Mission Board, turmoil, it just uh, mere months before was the episode where the trustee had fallen over dead at the HMB trustee meeting while arguing uh, over some of these issues that the trustees were fighting over. I mean, honestly, a woman had died in the trustee meeting in this. I showed up in the news office shortly thereafter and Larry Lewis had just come on, another Missourian there yeah. as the new president of the Home Mission Board. And it was just, it, it, it was, there was a lot of great stuff going, wonderful people still working at the HMB tremendous ministries, but I'm not kidding you when I say that that institution, that agency reorganized three times in the three years I was on staff there. It, it was just constant change, constant change. And so I loved what I was doing, but the chaos was just killing me. And at that point, I almost became a religion writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Gus Niebuhr had just left the uh, AJC at that point. And uh, his colleague, they, th th these were the days, the, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution had two religion writers, two, full-time. 
And uh, one of them was the preeminent Gus Niebuhr, and the other was my friend Gail White. And uh, I was in conversation about uh, going over to, to, to work with Gail there, and they just never could figure out if they were going to fill that position or not. Typical newspaper stuff, and, and dragging their feet, dragging their feet, dragging their feet. And in the meantime, Marv Knox had just landed at the Western Recorder in Kentucky as editor, and uh, we had never worked together before that point. And long story short, I ended up moving to Kentucky to work with Marv at the at the Western Recorder, and we became fast friends and uh, have worked together twice uh, along the way. I'll get to in just a moment. But uh, lived in Kentucky for eight years, was the managing editor and then ultimately editor of the Western Recorder over that 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 period. Marv left to come back to Texas, became editor of the Baptist Standard, and I swore I would not be like the minister of music who followed the pastor around from church to church because people just assumed I would end up in Texas after Marv went. And I, I protested way too much that that would never happen. And uh, it, it really, I, I, I actually said no the first time because of that. And uh, another mutual friend who was a communicator called me up when he found out what was going on. And he said, have you lost your ever-loving mind? Again, think of the time. This was 1998. Things, the, the turnover had happened at Southern Seminary. Kentucky was changing. There was a new executive director there. Things were heading in a more conservative direction. And uh, one of the, the most important events that happened for me was I, I was invited to speak at uh, Henley Barnett's Lunch Bunch. Henley Barnett was a beloved ethics professor, then retired at Southern Seminary. And he had some old geezers. Uh, can I say that? He had some, yeah, you get some older people. Uh, some friends. I, I was I was the young whippersnapper at the time in there, uh, who who met for for lunch once a month and just talk and had a speaker and talk about it. And they invited me to come, and we were talking about all this change. And uh, Dr. Barnett said, "You need to understand that inertia is on the side of the SBC." And uh, no truer words were ever spoken because what we have seen happen in Kentucky from then till now is a complete capitulation. Kentucky was a moderate Baptist stronghold. And with the turn at Southern Seminary and the infiltration that made out into the churches, all these small churches that depend uh, upon seminary students to be their pastors, it, it changed the whole landscape of the state, of the state convention. And my friend was saying, you need to go to Texas. Because at that moment, moderate Baptists thought there were two great hopes for the moderate Baptist movement. And that was the Baptist General Convention of Texas or the Baptist General Association of Virginia. Those are the two that were gonna you know, carry forward our Baptist principles. Well, that didn't really happen that way, uh, which is a whole nother story. But I got to Texas to be managing editor of the Baptist Standard working with Marv on, the first, uh, on November 1st, 1998. And the state convention was held uh, a couple of weeks later and at that moment, the Southern Baptists of Texas Convention split off from the BGCT that very week in Houston. That was my welcome to Texas. With so I've just I've managed to be in these places covering the so I was at Southwestern as things were heating up with Russell Dilday. I was the home mission board during its tremendous change and all that was going on there. Was in Kentucky during the flipping of Southern Seminary when Roy Honeycutt retired and Al Moeller came in. And then I ended up landing in Texas when the conventions split into the two. 
and all this went on. And so I was there five years. What I hear is that B&G hiring you is why we had a global pandemic. I mean, it just seems like... <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm not going to take credit for that, right? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. But after all that, we were members at Wilshire Baptist Church in, in Dallas here, and I was a lay leader, worked in strategic planning, adult Sunday school teacher, deacon, deacon officer, all this stuff. And uh, George Mason had the crazy idea one day that I ought to be the executive pastor of the church. We called it associate pastor. He called me up and proposed this idea from the personnel committee. And uh, I nearly wrecked the car at, at that moment uh, when he said that. But it, it, it really turned out 17 years. Uh, I took a, a, a diversion from journalism and was the associate pastor at this large moderate Baptist church, uh, flagship church in CBF Life in Dallas and had a wonderful, wonderful experience managing staff and running programs and doing things. And you're right. I kept my hand in writing some. I was a columnist for B&G, but never, never dreamed I'd be back as a working journalist again. It's interesting to hear some of that history. We've had we've had Marv on the on the program before, kind of talking about some of these moments and the way that Baptist journalism has changed. You know, I don't want to make comments about old geezers. I mean, but, you know, you, you went to Texas and I was in high school. So, um, yeah, I am the old geezer now. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it reminds me, uh, you know, the Western Recorder, for instance, is is ceasing publication. You know, uh, another historic you know, one of the oldest Baptist newspapers. Uh, you mentioned, you know, really this Herald that merged, you know, several years ago with, with B&G. We're definitely in a changing environment. It's been, you know, some 15 or so, I think, state Baptist publications in the last seven or eight years that have ceased publication and, and almost nobody's weekly anymore. And so- One, there's one. Yeah, Alabama Baptist. That's it. Yeah, the Baptist New Mexico was the second and they just announced they're stopping. So, I mean, you know, the, the environment, the landscape for religious journalism and Baptist journalism specifically has changed dramatically during your career. What do, what do you make of what's happening? Well, it's interesting. I sometimes I feel like Rip Van Winkle, who, you know, was asleep for all that time and then wakes up and discovers a whole new world. So when I left denominational journalism at the end of 2003, the Internet was just uh, the Internet was there. And we were talking about, you know, we were posting stuff and we were talking about the need to be online and all that. But we didn't have Facebook. We didn't have Twitter. You know, we just didn't have social media the way we do now. The whole world has changed. And so the ability to research things now is so much easier than it used to be. I, I mean, I, I can, like today, I've, I've got to write a story that's going to require a good bit of historical research. But everything I need, I can probably find online. Uh, the stuff I don't remember for myself from having lived through some of it. But I, I can find that. And in the past, I would have had to go dig through archives. Uh, it would have taken hours, uh, sometimes days, to do those types of things. And so that is a tremendous change. The other change for B&G that I mentioned earlier is when we started, we were a cooperative that uh, our first issues were, you're going to love this, were put out on a fax machine. I've got copies of them. They, they were they were faxes, and Baptist Press was doing the same thing at the time. Yeah, you, know, you would get the the word and way would get the faxed copy that day, and then everyone had to rekey it to typeset it, whatever they wanted to do uh, with it. And so we were putting out stuff on fax machine, and we went to not the end user, 
but to the state Baptist newspapers and to the major daily newspapers uh, in America, we were a news service to them, and then they published our stuff. And uh, what's happened over time is, in most cases, we've cut out the middleman, and we are a direct publisher through our own website. We appreciate the other publications that still use us, but in the uh, highly politicized environment of the SBC, not many of the state Baptist newspapers uh, have the ability or the courage to use our content. So thank you for what you do. Well, yeah, we're glad. Yeah, but that is an interesting thing that, you know, publications used to essentially be your customer. And now BaptistNews.com is primarily, you know, read by individual users. And, you know, we're going to rerun some of your stuff in our our magazine. But most of your audience, which is which is not unusual. I mean, like religion news service is another type of. Right. But they used to they used to not be an end user provider either. I mean, they used to provide only to other publications. So the whole the whole model has changed. So that's one thing, obviously, that, you know, the, the way the Internet has changed. And of course, with that, you know, yeah, we could do more research, but it also has changed the speed of kind of news expectation. I mean, you know this, that if, if you have a story idea and we don't get it done in, in, you know, today or tomorrow, then, you know, I probably missed the opportunity to write that story because either, you know, either you've written it or someone else has written it or it's just no longer as relevant for our readers. Yeah, I, I, I had that very uh, dilemma uh, this weekend. 5.30 Central Time on Friday, Baylor University dumped a news release about their you know, racial uh, history study group, 5.30 on Friday afternoon. And I had just you know, sort of wrapped up everything. And I sat there and thought, okay, do I you know, take my Friday night and push through something on this? And so I decided to wait until Sunday evening, and, but still you know, push that out Sunday evening to try to be ahead of the, ahead of the crowd on that. Uh, because we can now, right? The other good thing about publishing online, though, is if you make a mistake, you can go correct it. <laughs> right. You don't have to gather up everyone's print copy and erase it. You know, you can you can make you can you can correct it on the spot. That's right. I, I don't feel as bad when I have a typo online because I just I just go in immediately. But when someone mentions a typo in the magazine, I'm like, well, rats. <laughs> Nothing I can do about that. Yeah, yeah, that's a whole different thing. I mean, we we are in this environment though where we're also getting. Increasingly, I mean, in in religious journalism, academic squares, they talk about it as being kind of a, the balkanization of news media. And we see this in Baptist life. I mean, you mentioned it. Right. You know, a lot of Baptist publications aren't allowed to use you right. uh, if they're in Southern Baptist life. And so, you know, how does that impact what we're doing when people are only going to the news sources that already match their ideology? And, and how do we, you know, how does that impact the way you you plan the stories as well as, you know, how do we even kind of break out of this because this is, this is not just a religion journalism issue. Obviously, this is, you know, this is a national issue. Well, so interestingly, uh, just this morning, we, we closed a, a big reader survey that we've been doing over the last couple of weeks. And I, ju- I just, right before I got on this call, got the, the results of it that I, I'm still sort of processing. But one of, the, one of the questions we asked was, what other religion news sources do you read regularly? Uh, and I, w- I was interested in the overlap with uh, other publications. The the one that showed up, not surprisingly, most frequently accessed by our readers is Religion News Service. But we asked about Word and Way, and we asked about the Baptist Standard. Uh, in particular, we asked about Baptist Press. And a fair number of our readers are also reading Baptist Press. But the other interesting thing is we, we wanted to know, who are you and what, what's your... Um, church affiliation. 
And uh, only about 50% of our readers who did the survey are members of specific CBF-related churches. Uh, there, there's another 20% or so that are uh, members of one of the historically Black uh, Baptist denominations. And then there's another, I think it's 8%, that is some combination of one of those and CBF. But th there's, a, there's been a perception in the past that I want to work against that B&G is the new service of CBF, which we don't want to be, right? They don't need us to be that. We get no money from them, so we're, we're not doing their work. And this sort of, I, I think, demonstrates that we're broader than that. Uh, and within our readership are a lot of Presbyterians and Methodists and Episcopalians and Catholics and ex-evangelicals who are not Baptists. And that's really one of my big goals is to expand the tent into what I call uh, progressive Baptists and their adjacent communities. Uh, because I think there are a lot of folks out there who are not in Baptist churches, but share our values and interests and have no new service like us. So when you're thinking about that, then I wonder what are some of those, what are some of those core interests, those issues, so that that would apply not only to progressive Baptists but then those adjacent communities. What are those 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 core values or, or stories? Yeah, uh, so that that's going to be uh, social justice. Uh, it's going to be uh, racial uh, equity. It's it's going to be re religious liberty, uh, historically defined uh, way at the top of that list. It's going to be education. Uh, it's going to be faith formation. It, it, it's all of these things that have to do with how to. Uh, it's going to be Christian ethics, how to how to live in the world today, and how to understand the world today. And it's interesting uh, in in our reader survey, uh, the thing that the content area that ranked the highest in interest among our readers is understanding current events. So, you know, one of the things that you all do on your site is you have you have both news and opinion. And I wonder if you could talk about it, because I think sometimes people kind of don't capture the difference between those two categories. And I know you also have kind of a, sometimes you label stuff analysis, which is you know, also a little bit of a hybrid kind of thing. Right. So I wonder if you could kind of talk a little bit about those categories, because I think it's for, helpful for people to understand the difference of what they're reading. Yeah, great question. So we have three, we have three types of content, news. Uh, which would include feature con news and feature. That's one category analysis and then opinion. Uh, so analysis is that hybrid between news and opinion, which by the way, I noticed like whenever you rerun one of my things, you almost always label analysis. So uh, for whatever that means, <laughs> well, what it means is uh, it's not, it's not purely opinion, but it's also not just straight up telling someone else's story because for an analysis piece, we're using someone who's drawing upon their own experience and, and historical knowledge to be able to interpret a matter. So uh, an analysis piece is really interpretive. So a good example of that last week was we ran this massive piece uh, by Joe Westbury uh, about this dispute between the state Baptist conventions and the North American Mission Board of the SBC. Well, it, it's a 9,000 word piece that is made possible by the fact that Joe worked for the old home mission board, knows all the players uh, and is able to interpret this for us in a way that just an average reporter couldn't. So he's not giving opinions so much, but he is giving context. And so that's why we label some stuff analysis uh, in that way. 
uh, news and feature content is uh, going to be purely purely objective to the extent that we can be objective versus the opinion pieces that are just that they're op-eds we we don't really typically publish devotional material but opinion pieces that are from a wide stable of writers uh, from across the country who uh, had some have been with us for a long time and others are you know new new folks to us and we're always adding to that group one of the things I'm proudest of is that in the past eight months uh, we've added six uh, more monthly female writers uh, to the group we've added more persons of color to to that opinion group and we're, we've added uh, some LGBTQ folks uh, additionally to that group who are not just writing about that, but writing about everyday stuff. You know, uh, we're not trying to pigeonhole people into a to, to a category, but we want to increase the representation that you see uh, in in those opinion pieces. You, you you made a comment that I also think is important to unpack on about the news articles about being as as objective as we can be. So I wonder if you could talk a little about that, this this idea of objectivity, which obviously, I mean, you know, we we strive to be fair, but there is there is this sense that we can never be truly and completely objective. I mean, we're both in religious journalism. We have biases or we wouldn't even find, right. you know, I mean, we're we're followers of Christ. And that is obviously a bias in the way we view the news and even what we consider to be newsworthy. Well, you know, back back in the dark ages when I was in journalism school, they were still teaching us that there was such a thing as pure objectivity, and that's what we were to strive to strive for. But that was also a time when we all naively thought that you could present two sides to an issue, and they would be, you know, you were doing the right thing by presenting equal opposing ideas. You're either for this tax policy for this reason, or you're against this tax policy for this reason. You're for the city council amendment because of this, or you're against it because of this. And these are two rational ideas. And this is before irrational conspiracy theories took over the United States and parts of the world. And what you know, what we have seen happen over the past five, six years is absolutely unthinkable back in those days of journalism school, where major leading publications have had to say in news stories, so-and-so said such and such and such and such, and that is a lie. It is not true. Whereas the, the way I was raised uh, through journal, you could never say that because you're, you're, you're giving an opinion. But the reality is we're having to correct blatant factual errors in real time. And the only way to do that is to say, yes, he said that, but by the way, that's not true. And the to- I think that that has changed everything for objectivity, perceived objectivity, uh, because then we get criticized for you know expressing opinions, but we also have a responsibility to purvey the truth, right? And so, it, not all ideas are equal at this point. Yeah, and and not all not all ideas have equal weight, even if there is a disagreement. And so I think that's also was one of the the problems with the old style of journalism would be you know let's say like climate change, with ninety seven ninety eight percent of scientists you know are very clear that this is this is happening. It would be inaccurate then though to give equal weight to the two sides. That's right, because one of them is such a, a fringe minority that if you're going to acknowledge them, it should be weighted 
in the body of scientific research. And so even, even when presenting different perspectives, they were often treated as of equal weight or equal value. And so, yeah, I think that we're, we're all trying to figure out what does it mean to not just be a stenographer, but to actually help people understand what is happening and what is true. And, and this, this goes back to the very battle for control of Babs Press in 1990, because what Paul Pressler and Paige Patterson wanted and got at that time was to be able to control what was put out through the news service. Before that, it was objective and it was factual. But according to them, and particularly Pressler, it, it was biased against them. Well, it was just telling what they were doing and what they were saying, but they wanted an advocate, not an unbiased news source. And that's what they got. So obviously, you've probably occasionally gotten a little bit of criticism. <laughs> no, but I wonder if you, what are the topics that you know before you 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 publish, whether it's by you or by by one of your writers, but you know because you've done these before and you've been in the biz. You're like, I know I'm, you know, this needs to be said, but I also know this one's gonna this one's gonna bring in the the emails or the phone calls. Yeah, so there, there's there's two kinds of things uh, on that. And the one that, that you have to be prepared for, really, is the ones that you don't see coming. And these are incidental mentions in stories. People who are not the primary focus of a story, but are maybe incidental to the story and they pass through it. And they get all upset about some reference uh, in there because they don't want to be associated with those people or you've, you've missed whatever. And you're so focused on the big issue in the story that you don't anticipate that a third-rate player in this story is going to be the one who gets really upset with you over something. That's the surprising part. Uh, on the other, yeah, there's certain issues we know. You know, if we if we write about abortion, uh, if we write about in the environment, uh, if we write about the sexuality. But on the other hand, you know, I'm enough of a P.T. Barnum character that. Um, let, let's let's rack up the page views. You can not like the story, but um, please tweet about how much you don't like it and include a link. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Oh, which is exactly what happened with the Jezebel stories we've run recently uh, about the two Texas pastors who called Kamala Harris a Jezebel. And man, I got I got raked over the coals in very personal ways on Twitter, uh, in particular mainly by young white male Calvinists who were picking me apart for having reported this and thinking I shouldn't have and so forth. But they kept providing the link and people kept going and reading the story. And, you know, then it got picked up other places and they just sort of perpetuated it in their anger at me over that. And you've had that happen too. So and I had it over the weekend on the whole, the same story. So the founders guy, you know, said that right. not only is she a Jezebel, she's going to hell. And, and so anyways, I put up a little piece and yeah, I probably have the same Twitter handles that have been uh, blowing up my mentions on Twitter all weekend and also, you know, driving the traffic to the website. So yeah, I, <laughs> people are, by the way, people are mean on Twitter. People are, I just, I've written about this before, but some of these pastors and the stuff they say on Twitter, I wonder if their congregations are, are watching what they're doing because because it's not becoming, you know, the, the way they will attack people on, on Twitter. And particularly, again, the most egregious behavior I've seen in that category is young white male Calvinists. 
Yeah, there really is something there. The, the, the young white male Calvinist pastors, and you can tell by their bio, they're reformed, is you know prominent in their bio, and they're aggressive. I, 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 I didn't know where we would end up in this interview, but uh, we, are, we are on Calvinist twi Twitter now. So I guess <laughs> but that's the beauty of our jobs, right? I mean, frankly, I wake up any day and I don't necessarily know what I might be writing about. I mean, there's some topics that I know that, I, you know, stories that I'm working on, but you never know what's going to be the story that's like, well, this is the news and we need to cover it today. That's and right. so it's kind of nice to be able to, even, even in, a, in a niche of, of religious journalism, uh, there's still plenty of you know new topics to to consider. It, it is exciting. It's also uh, debilitating at times because it's hard to turn it off and and know when to when to quit. Particularly just as with you, we we have a very small staff, and so uh, it, it's not like I can always get someone else to um, you know I, I can't always assign it out to someone else and and make them work over the weekend to do it right. So some, sometimes those types of things we have to do ourselves. It's it's very hard to know when to stop. Well, other than, you know, the pandemic ending and, you know, we get to see each other in, in public and, and go to meetings and all that kind of fun stuff. What are, what are you looking forward to at B&G in the future? I know, you know, you've been there less than a year and I, and I, I know you've made a lot of changes and you bring in a new columnist and content. And, and frankly, you know, it's the 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 site has really increased in the amount of not just content but quality content over the last several months. I've been Thank really you. really impressed, and we've we've been running some of your stuff in the in the magazine as a result of that. But what are you looking forward to in the future? I, I, you may not have you know, want to share all your secret plans, but uh, I'm sure you've got some things you can tell us that you're excited about. Sure. So uh, th there's an irony here. Uh, so I was a board member of BNG before I became the executive director. And when we merged with a religious herald a few years ago, we had to come up with a new name for the organization. And, and the name that was recommended was Baptist News Global. And I was the lone board member who voted against the name because I felt like the word global was just way too aspirational for what we were. Now fast forward and here we are. And one of the things that I most want to live into is the global identity. And so one of our goals that we're actually seeking grants for right now is to expand our ability to have uh, global correspondence. Uh, I, I have a freelancer who is regularly covering Africa for us now. Yeah. And I want to add additional correspondents who are covering Asia and the Americas and Europe and so forth so that we can have some focused attention on these other areas of the world and help us not be so parochial. In, in our interest, because I, I think we've got to understand what's happening in Christianity and other religions around the world. Uh, we still have a, a, a focus out of our niche of Christianity. Uh, you know, religion news service is still much more global in every way than us, and that's their niche. Uh, our niche is a step or two down the funnel uh, from that in, in focusing on a particular perspective, more progressive Christianity not all religions and not even all Christianity, but I, that still requires a global perspective. So that's an example of the kind of thing that we're, that we're trying to do, expanding our freelance base uh, in general, but also expanding that uh, globally. Very good. Well, Mark, thank you so much for your time on the program as well. It's great to continue the partnership that B&G and Word and & Way have had as we run each other's pieces and 
continue to to work together. It's yeah, it's great to to have that partnership and relationship. So thanks for thanks for being with us. Glad to be there, and thanks for the invitation. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptist about an adjective. If you'd like to learn more about Baptist News Global, you can find them at baptistnews.com. As always, you'll find us at wardandway.org. And don't forget to check out our sponsoring partner for this week's episode, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook and head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and write a positive review. It really does help more people to find the show. You can find easy-to-share links at podcast.wordandway.org. If you'd like to give to support this program, we'd greatly appreciate it. And all you have to do at wordandway.org is hit the donate button. And whatever you give there will help support the production of this podcast, as well as our website and monthly magazine. And speaking of that magazine, if you're not already a subscriber, you really are missing out on more news and information that you're going to want to read. So I have a special offer for you, half off for your first year. Just go to tinyurl.com slash wwoffer. If you have any comments or feedback about this program, you can share those with me at bkaler at wordandway.org. Thanks for listening.